millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Jason Palmer, editor of the Economist Espresso app, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. On today's show, anthropologists have found that competitive sport brings out the touchy-feely side in men. Men seem to be more concerned to really show how they feel positively towards their opponent than women do. We're enemies today, but friends tomorrow. Professor Richard Wrangham, the lead author of a new study, brings us this tale of bromance later in the show. And are your ears still ringing after that gig last week? A group of scientists thinks one sea creature may help find a cure. But first, we turn to the different ways scientists are investigating to create the fountain of youth in pill form. Could we reach the point where medicine can fix you up faster than you can wear yourself out? With me to explore that is Natasha Loader, our healthcare correspondent. Hello. First question for you. Can you explain to me why scientists think they can do anything about aging in the first place? Is it not one of nature's inevitabilities? Well, yeah, we, we used to think that. And until about the mid-90s, we thought that aging wasn't really subject to any kind of general control and that there would be hundreds if maybe thousands of genes and lots of environmental factors. And you know, for a couple of reasons, that view has really started to change. One reason is work on calorie-restricted diets in animals has shown that restricting calories extends healthy lifespan in a whole range of animals. But a key finding was in the 90s when some genetic work on uh, little roundworms showed that just by altering a single gene, you could double their lifespan. The sort of flurry of ageing work that has commenced basically has led to the conclusion that there are actually some biological levers in a range of species, including humans, that actually can be pulled in order to extend healthy lifespan. And that's something that has been going on now, experimentation in this area, been going on now for quite a while. So wait, we're talking about calorie-restricted diets, I have to go hungry for the rest of my days, or are we still talking pill form? No, we're talking pills. Um, What we're talking about now is you know, if there are these biological levers that can be pulled in order to extend lifespan, you know, we're, we're saying what kind of pharmacological options, i.e. what drugs are there, that might kind of reproduce that effect. Some people are very lucky enough to be born with excellent genes that will allow them to live to 100, 120. And those are the sort of molecular pathways that drugs would be targeting. You'd be looking to try and reproduce that in those people who are lucky enough to have that genetic endowment when they're born. So what are the promising drugs? Well, there's a whole range of drugs that people are looking into. In fact, you know, people have been looking at anti-aging drugs for a long time. One of them was resveratrol, 
which didn't show as much promise when it was tested in humans as had been initially hoped. Now that's uh, one that's in red wine, right? That's right. That's right. And the, the problem with resveratrol is is that it's a it's a dirty drug, and it it kind of makes <laughs> red wine. It's a dirty drug. <laughs> it's a dirty drug, and in fact, it does a lot of things inside the cell. It doesn't really target anti aging pathways as cleanly as you'd, you'd possibly want. You know that said. You know, it's still it's still seen as potentially something that might be uh, useful. But you know, more useful still is perhaps a drug called metformin, which has shown a lot of promise as an anti-aging drug. I mean, the story behind metformin is quite interesting. It's been used in diabetes for decades, and it's actually a generic drug. It's been used around the world. It's cheap. And, you know, we're starting to see uh, in a lot of studies, epidemiological studies, we're seeing that people who are taking it have lower risk from cancer. We're seeing also lower risk of cardiovascular disease. And there's also some signs that it might have an effect on mild cognitive impairment, um, a good effect, that is. And so, you know, this this is kind of making it a potential broad-spectrum anti-aging drug in humans, although that claim really does need to be tested out in a sort of very controlled and rigorous manner. So what's holding some of these drugs up? Aging is seen as something that everybody gets and drug regulators don't treat it as if it's a disease. And so we kind of have to get over that that red tape, that little bit of red tape, that hurdle. But once we get to a stage where we have even one anti-aging drug approved, then that would sort of seem to open a doorway for many others. And there are many other drugs that one might look at. There's something called rapamycin, which is an immunosuppressant that, again, seems to have anti-aging effects, works through a slightly different mechanism. And there are others. There are many others that people are talking about. Okay, so here's the real question. If the drugs existed, if I had one here in my hand, would you take it? Or would you go some crazier route, such as, I don't know, getting old naturally or, you know, freezing your brain with cryonics? Um, No, I wouldn't. But I'm would look very closely at the trials when they do happen. I mean, metformin is very widely available. If I wanted to get hold of that drug and take it myself, I could do. And in fact, many people who study anti-aging therapies actually do test things on themselves. A couple of the researchers I spoke to admitted to taking metformin, uh, another one to rapamycin. And so... That's fine for them. If you're someone who studies this deeply and you know what dose to take and how to make sure that you're doing well on it, then, you know, then fine. If you know what you're doing, I don't know what I'm doing. But, you know, once it's clear what kind of dose you should take at what age and what sort of benefits one might expect and what side effects there'll be, because all drugs come with side effects, that's the point at which people should start considering taking this drug. And it's the point at which I'd consider taking the drug. I'm going I'm to call that a very, very qualified yes. <laughs> Thank you very much, Natasha. Thanks. Anyone else out there hoping to bathe in the fountain of youth? Let us know your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook. Last week, we discussed the making of artificial neurons, and Arthur Scock, replying to us on Facebook, found a connection with longevity. He said, if they somehow make it possible to link such artificial neurons to biological already created ones, we're looking at some of the first steps to immortality. Fascinating. Indeed it is, Arthur. And thanks for everyone else's comments. Keep them coming. You can find us at Economist Radio on Twitter or on email at radio at economist.com.
Next, a new study suggests that men are more likely to get physical with their opponents after competitive sport. Touching each other is, of course, a very intimate thing to do. And to be able to spend time touching someone who has been trying desperately to defeat you in the previous few minutes is a very dramatic demonstration of uh, your wanting to make up with them. That was lead author Richard Wrangham of Harvard University. So why are men so interested in making up with their opponents? In animals, and in particular it's been looked at in primates, such as chimpanzees, there is a tendency for opponents after a fight to come together and be friendly with each other, which is very surprising. You know, you might expect that they would, what they would want to do is to have nothing to do with each other. But the ones that come together uh, most often are the ones that have got a, a real interest in having a friendly relationship with their opponent because in different circumstances they might need them. They might need them to be allies against other opponents. So, in short, you don't want the guy next to you on the battlefield to have a grudge against you. Next time you might want him to have your back when a real enemy comes at you both. This capacity for uh, changing your emotional attitude uh, is really very dramatic and and is doubtless something that has uh, been bequeathed to us by evolutionary past. The anthropologists observed behavior in several sports, but one stood out because of its violent nature. The boxing results were particularly dramatic because uh, in boxing you have people really trying to hurt each other uh, and succeeding, of course. And yet, in the case of the boxing, where the men are very much stronger than women, are able to put a tremendous amount of punishment on each other, then the difference in the amount of physical contact and the intensity of the physical contact was particularly uh, noteworthy. That There was really hardly any overlap between the men and the women at all. The men were very, very keen to uh, embrace each other intensely. So could this have implications beyond the sporting world? Professor Rangham thinks so. The fate of nations, to some extent, is going to be affected by the individual relationships uh, among leaders, and those are going to be affected by... Uh, quite small about perceived dominance and perceived willingness to make up and be friendly despite uh, aggressive interaction. Next, sea anemones may have the answer to how we could repair damaged hearing after explosions or too much time at loud rock concerts. Matt Kaplan, who's tuned his ear to the story, is with me on the line. Matt, I'm going to love hearing how sea anemones figure into this. What have scientists found? I never realized that anemones actually have little hairs on the ends of their tentacles, which they use to to brush up against fish so they can determine whether or not they want to sting them and capture them and eat them. Uh, But it turns out that they do. And researchers noticed about 10 years ago that when the anemone struggles with the fish and the hair gets damaged, the anemone starts secreting proteins that allow the little hairs to kind of regenerate. And they asked the question, well, is it possible that the proteins that the anemones are oozing out might be able to help the little hairs in your ears that allow you to detect sound. So they started messing with this and they found, wow, you know what, there actually might be an opening here to heal people whose ears get damaged by really loud noises. Because those hairs on sea anemones and the hairs inside our ears are made of the same stuff? They are. I mean, crucially, it's that they have little, it's it's not so much that you have a hair, it's that you have little bundles of hair that are attached to a cell, which then records information and sends it to your brain. And in that case, you know, the way in which that bundle responds to sound waves tells you what kind of symphony you're listening to. Uh, As that bundle gets blasted by, you know, screaming guitar at way too many decibels for you, the bundle gets disheveled. 
And historically, we've always assumed that once it gets badly disheveled, it's never going to recuperate, and the cell at the base gets stressed and ultimately dies. That's why you lose hearing over time when you hear lots and lots of really loud noises. And these researchers thought, well, wait a minute. Is it possible to use the proteins that anemones are using to heal their bundles on other animals? And how did they test the idea? So they started with blind cave fish, and the, the, the species name escapes me. But, you know, if you can't see in a cave and you're not going to have eyes, you got to have something else for sensing your environment, right? Sure. What they did was they looked at these little hair bundles that are on, on the body of this blind cave fish, and they realized that they could stress them by putting them into solutions that were lacking uh, enough calcium. And then they exposed them to the proteins found on the tentacles of anemones, and they found, whoa, wait a minute. Normally, these hair bundles take about nine days for the fish to regenerate when they get damaged. But in the presence of the anemone ooze, it took less than an hour. So that got them really excited, and they thought, well, let's start playing with the little hair bundles found in the ears of mammals. So they looked at mice. This is going to be another one of those stories of how the mice were terribly, terribly tortured in the lab, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, I got to be honest with you, Jason. These mice, yeah, it didn't go well for them. They went to four- and five-day-old mouse pups, and they went to their inner ear, and they collected tissue from their inner ear, which it turns out is an awful lot like the tissue found in the inner ear of a human, because mouse ears and human ears are not that different. And they brought them into the laboratory and they started exposing them to solutions that would cause their little hair bundles to become disheveled and the cells at their base to become stressed. After they did this, they exposed them to a solution that either contained the proteins from the anemone or a, a, a placebo solution that was lacking those proteins. And then they monitored how well the you know what what the what the little hair bundles looked like afterwards and they found that their structures healed remarkably quickly whereas those in the placebo solution where there were no proteins present really suffered quite badly and, and did not regenerate at all so i guess the question is how soon am i going to have a uh, a little bottle of stuff that i can throw in my ears after i go to the rock concert I don't think you're ever going to have a little bottle of stuff that you apply all on your own to your inner ear. But if you started to suffer from chronic hearing loss due to the fact that you had had too many explosions near you or you had gone to too many rock concerts, then there is a real possibility that we're going to see medics having the ability to apply an ointment to your inner ear that would allow these little hair bundles to regenerate and recuperate from the damage that you exposed them to so that your cells in your ear don't die from that stress and you don't ultimately lose your hearing from the process. So that that's pretty cool. We're not there yet because mouse pups aren't the same as humans, but they're moving that way, and that, that's kind of exciting. Being a podcast here, we are, of course, keen for scientists to help everyone have perfect hearing. So uh, do us a favor, Matt, and tell the scientists to keep up the good work. And, and thanks for bringing us the story. Yeah, will too. Take care, Jason. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read Natasha's piece on the secrets of immortality or Matt's articles on sea anemones and male reconciliation, do pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist in print or see it online. I'm Jason Palmer. In London, this is The Economist. 
award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.